dark days we live in, aren't they? And uh, people need the hope of Christ. And it's really interesting that we just kind of prayed the Lord's Prayer in part, you know, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil, because I'm looking at temptation this morning. And uh, for those that don't know, I had an operation nine days ago on my knee, so if I um, get a bit tired, I've got a little Westlife stool over here. So I'm going to bring that out and serenade you all. So that's, we'll see how we go, because normally I preach for about an hour and a half, two hours, but when it's on something serious like temptation, it can be a bit longer than that, so that's why I've got the Westlife stool uh, ready to go. Why don't we just read this, um, I just want to read it to you, Temptation of Jesus, it's headed. Uh, This is Matthew chapter 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it's written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. So one fallen angel, that's who Satan is, by the way. He was Lucifer. He was the most beautiful of all the angels, and he rebelled against uh, God and wanted to be God, and he fell. And that's all he is, a fallen angel. And, you know, where he leaves, hundreds come and minister to Jesus after he's been in the wilderness for 40 days. So uh, the temptation of Jesus, we're going through Matthew, so that's why I've got it. Those of you that are astute will know we were doing a 20 question series over the summer and before then, and one of the questions which I landed on was, how do I fight temptation? (laughs) And I used this passage. Um, I think at the time I thought, oh, it's all right, someone else will be preaching on temptation when it comes around to it, so they can preach a sermon. I don't need to write a brand new one on the same passage, like, how am I going to do that? But that's what's happened. Um, So I'm going to apologize in advance. It won't be the same, so don't think, oh, I can just switch off. It will be different. Um, And it's amazing, isn't it, with the Bible? I find this anyway. Hopefully you find it, that you don't just go, I've read it once, I'm sorted. But you can read a passage, and even though eight weeks ago you preached on it, and when you preach on a passage, you spend quite a lot of time in that passage. You almost kind of embody it because you want to know what all the words mean and what they mean in their original language and who it's applied to. And I reread this and I got a whole different heap of different things to say than I had last time. So that happens sometimes, doesn't it? It's almost like the Spirit of God just says, no, you haven't got it all sussed. You don't know everything. Let me show you again what my word says. And um, that's hopefully happened. So hopefully it's benefited me anyway. So at the very least, I've enjoyed it. Um, but we're looking at the temptation of Jesus. And uh, a couple of things really jumped out to me um, as we were looking at this. And firstly, like temptation, when we think about temptation, um, I got this from Google, but in the context of a faith, so in the context of those who profess Jesus as Lord, it's the inclination to sin. 
It's the inclination to rebel against God and do our own thing. Um, it's the desire that's in our heart to do something that ultimately is ungodly, something that we know is wrong, and something that ultimately will wreck our lives. That's what we're kind of talking about here when we talk about temptation. When Jesus prays, you know, uh, lead us not into temptation and deliver us from evil because it will wreck us. And actually, the kind of temptation leads to evil. You know, these days that we're living in are evil, aren't they? What happened in France with the terrorism attack, it didn't just happen like that. You know, there's a journey that people go on. And some point, at some measure of time, there's been evil and there's been a temptation to do something that's ungodly. And the ultimate outcome is evil and lives that are wrecked and heartache and pain and suffering. And it's because of sin. It's because man goes its own way. And temptation is almost the, the start. If they're stepping stones to evil, it's like the very first, it's the, it's the start. There's this great metaphor, and I can't remember who kind of coined it. I think it was one of the Puritans. It said temptation, we need to think of it as nothing more than bait on a hook. That if we're fishing and we were trying to catch a fish, you know, that, that we bait up our hook. We try and make something look appetizing and something tasty so that the fish is going to really enjoy it. But ultimately, it's going to lead to death. You know, unless you're kind of humane and you chuck it back in, you know, if they're too small. I remember we went fishing once, didn't we? And it was an absolute disaster. And the only thing we caught was a little pollock. And it was so small, you couldn't actually, you had to chuck it back in. So, you know, we hooked it, we hurt him, and then we let him bleed out in the ocean. <laughs> we let another fish take him out. He probably didn't survive, Grace. Yeah. Oh, well. But Jesus, this is the first thing, the first thing in that context of temptation that is going to wreck us, is is there to destroy us. This is what we read, and it it just struck struck me in a massive way. The first verse says, Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now, you might go, oh, yeah, I don't understand what his point is here. But if you actually stop and go, Jesus was led by the Spirit, so was led by God himself into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That was the purpose, that his character might be tested, that he might know his father in heaven, that he might rely and trust and his faith might be built. And actually, even Jesus, the son of God, faced the opportunity for his life to be wrecked, had the opportunity to take decisions and make choices that would lead towards evil. And you're thinking, well, how how is that possible? Because he's God, That, that that can't be right. You must be wrong. And there's some important verses here from Hebrews that help us understand that kind of paradox. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect being tempted as we are, yet without sin. So the Bible says two things, and I want to say this from the start. It says two things of Jesus here. That one, he has been tempted in every way, and yet he was without sin. So, fact, he's the son of God. Fact. He was tempted, fact. They both go together. And we read that in the, para- in the story of Matthew, read it in Luke's parallel account as well. And you kind of go, well, how is that possible? How can uh, Jesus have been tempted in all these ways? We're all tempted, aren't we? And we go, oh, well, I've fallen here and I've made a mistake here and I've made a mistake there. How is it possible for someone to be tempted in every respect yet not fall for one of them? You go, well, because he's God. But actually, what's portrayed, if you read James, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, so he's going to know him really well, he comments and says, well, God cannot be tempted. 
That's what James says. And yet Matthew here says, well, Jesus was walking in the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan for 40 days. And you kind of go, well, which is it? (laughs) Are James and Matthew, are they contradicting each other? Well, actually, James and Matthew, you know, probably mates. Um, And actually, they're not contradicting each other here. This is the remarkable thing about Jesus being in the wilderness is something unique happened with Jesus, didn't it? Something unique happened at Christmas time when we celebrate it every year. It's not just a little picture postcard, but God becoming man is something unique. And actually, in his humanity is how he dealt with temptation. I kind of try and think of this uh, with the temptations, if you read through the way Jesus could have cheated, couldn't he? In one sense, the tests of Satan. He could have turned a stone into bread if he wanted to. If he wanted a ciabatta because he was hungry, he was able to do that. But he didn't use his divinity. He didn't say, okay, I'm going to use the fact that I'm God here to defeat temptation. He defeated temptation as a man. And that's why the author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. In his humanity, he defeated temptation. In his humanity, he defeated evil. So that actually, if we're caught up in that, if we trust in Jesus, we can as well. Paul in Philippians, Paul who was, before he was converted, the equivalent of the head of ISIS today. So we should be praying for those guys, shouldn't we? That actually, wouldn't it be amazing if one of the leaders of ISIL or ISIS or Islamic State, whatever you want to call them, that one of them met with Jesus? Because we could all have our views on, you know, whether bombing people in Syria and Iraq works or whether we have to have troops on the ground to defeat Islamic State or, you know, when Francois Hollande says we will show no mercy. Well, what does that mean? Well, actually, ultimately, the only way there is going to be peace is if people meet Jesus. Is, and it's, if, it's as if it would be great as if some of these leaders of Islamic State met Jesus Christ. I had their lives transformed. And Chris was telling me a couple of stories yesterday just at the Open Doors conference of the, you know, the most unexpected people. People that you would just be like, no, who meet Jesus and it transforms everything. So why not? He's done it before. He transformed Saul's life. And he writes, the man who was once a former terrorist says, Jesus humbled himself. He left his throne in heaven and he became a man so that he could identify with us. So that when it says... Uh, He can sympathize with our every weakness. You know, and the beauty of this is that during his life, he was fully God and fully man. And still now in heaven, Jesus didn't throw off his humanity. He's still fully God and fully man. He still represents us perfectly to the Father. And he's still there to say, I sympathize with you. You know what? I know what you're going through. I've been there. I've got the t-shirt. I know what it's like to face temptation. I know what it's like to face trouble. I know what it's like to face pain and hurt. And I conquered it. That's what those verses in Hebrews say. Looking back on this, the same author, we don't know who it is, but the author of Hebrews writes this. Therefore he, talking about Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So the priests were the ones who kind of interceded. The, they were the go-betweens. They were the people that would represent the people to God and represent God to the people. So he had to be made like us in order to do that. 
And then it says, um, the faithful high priest and service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Now, that's a long word that basically means he, in order to pay the penalty of sin, he laid down his life upon a cross. And the wrath of the Father for sin and hate and evil was turned upon him. So basically, Jesus stands in the breach for us. That's what that long, fancy word means. You just need to remember Jesus rescues. So in order for Jesus to rescue humanity, he had to become a man. In order for Jesus to know what it's like to be tempted as we are and to be able to sympathize with us, he had to do it in his humanity. Because our temptation, one of our temptations, that's a bad misuse, but our feeling sometimes is, God, you know, Jesus, you don't know what it feels like. You don't know. You don't know what it's like to say no to this. You don't know what it's like to face this temptation to live in such a way. No, actually he does. And actually he knows it better than we ever will. I mean, have any of us been tempted in the wilderness for 40 days by Satan? Anybody? I haven't, praise the Lord. But Jesus has. You know, if anyone's been there and got the t-shirt ever in history, it's him. And the reason I've labored that is just for that point. That it was in his humanity. 40 days he faces. I know it only mentions three temptations. But for 40 days, Satan would be having a go. He'd be saying, what about this? What about that? Why don't you do this? Why don't you turn this stone into bread, Jesus? You're going to be hungry. And he feels the full force of that. You know, I don't know. Maybe today you are really struggling. Maybe you are in a, a difficult place in terms of, you know there's something that you keep doing and you know it's wrong before God. I don't know what that is, but you'll know. I'm not going to kind of, unless God gives me a word, but we'll handle that if he does. But, you know, you'll know in your heart there may be things that you're doing that are just wrong before God. And you think, well, God, you don't know what it feels like, you know. But actually he does. But the flip side of that is you might be sat here going, well, actually everything's okay right now. I'm not feeling tempted. I'm fancy free. Everything's lovely. But we will face struggles, won't we? The next temptation is only going to be upon the horizon. And this is something that's important to note. Jesus is the most holy man ever, right? Not Muhammad, forget about him, but Jesus. He's the most holy man ever, peaceful, loving, kind. And yet, he faces 40 days temptation in the wilderness. The most holy, godly man ever. So if, if that's the precedent... What about Gubbins? What about you? What about me? If Jesus faced it, you can sure we're going to face it too. We will have a struggle. But the fact that Jesus has had this struggle for us and conquered us, conquered it and conquered evil should give us hope. You know, I was watching on Friday night, as I'm sure many of you were. We had a great welcome night um, for people that are new to the church, came along and chatted about some stuff. We got home, turned on the news, and you're like, Wow. It just kind of sucks the life out of you, doesn't it? And it drains you. And we stayed up till like half one just watching because we were like, well, we can't go to bed because this is happening right now. And the days we live in are evil. And you can be like, well, you can feel hopeless. You can feel low. You can feel helpless. You can feel like death really does have a sting. But we need to be reminded, don't we, actually, that Jesus has conquered for us. That there is hope, but the hope is only in him. It's not in anything else, but only in him. And as I said before, when it comes to temptation, when we think of these things, to think of it as just a bait upon a hook.
to try and catch, it's there to try and catch us out and tempt us. You know, if Satan jumped to the end game, you know, because he does it, he does it in a way that kind of tempts us. So he says, you know, fame, fortune, power, all things that appeal to us to be famous, to be known, to have money, to have wealth, to have family, to have comfort, to have security, tick whatever box you like. We'll all go, oh yeah, that, that would be great. But that's like the bait. You see, if he gave us the hook, if he said, here's gluttony, here's drunkenness, here's addiction, here's brokenness, here's bitterness, here's hate, here's evil, none of us would go for it, would we? <laughs> it's not like, you know, you're watching TV on ITV between Britain's Got Talent and then there's a, an advert for heroin. <laughs> you're not going to go out and buy it. It doesn't work like that. I don't think anybody starts by saying, I want to be addicted to drugs. Don't go, yes, I, I would love to wreck my life. But it, it starts earlier than that, doesn't it? It starts with something that looks good and then actually fails to deliver. So I, these are just a few thoughts, really, on what Jesus does and how Jesus combats it and how actually to help. Because that's what the Bible should do. That's, it should equip us and help us to actually deal with it. It's great. We could talk about, we could go through the passage and we could get the original Greek and say, well, this means that. But actually what we need is to say, how do I fight temptation? How tomorrow morning when something comes up, do I deal with it and do I combat it? How does Jesus do it? So how therefore should I do it? And um, in Matthew chapter 2, I talked about how actually Matthew kind of, as he starts his gospel, he's setting the scene. It's like a war. It's like the forces of darkness against the forces of good. You know, it's, it's the war above all wars. And if it began in chapter 2 with, you know, Jesus trying to be killed by Herod and them having to flee to Egypt, it's in full flow here in Matthew chapter 4, isn't it? It's kind of ramped up a notch with Jesus in the desert with Satan himself. Here's a battle taking place. And it's interesting, I think, that if you read the kind of verses before and after, if you read the end of Matthew 3, which I believe Carl spoke on two weeks ago, um, it's the baptism of Jesus. It's this amazing high point in Jesus' life where he's baptized and uh, what uh, the, the spirit like a dove comes down and uh, falls upon him. And then the father from heaven says, this is my son whom I love. That's an amazing experience, isn't it? And then if you read on in Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus comes out of the wilderness, he goes on to start his public ministry. He starts healing the sick. He starts delivering people from demons. He starts blessing people and rescuing people and calls his first disciples. But in between those two amazing experiences, he has a valley. It's not all mountaintop. Even for Jesus, it's not all mountaintop. He has a, a period, a time of a real trial in the wilderness. And uh, he's got some hard yards here. This is verse 2. And the tempter, that's Satan, came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And I find interesting that just verses earlier, you know, the impression I get when I read this text is, Jesus could still be wet as he comes out of the river. He's just been baptized and he's led by the Spirit straight into the desert. There's no in-between bit that Jesus went for a meal, went to see his mom, kissed her goodbye, said, I'm going away for 40 days. He could still be wet in his clothes as he's come out of the river, baptized, and he's straight into the wilderness. And just before God has said, hasn't he? The father has said, this is my beloved son with whom, uh, this, is, this is my son with whom I'm pleased. 
Now Jesus, just moments later, is tired. He's alone. He's hungry. And the question posed to him is this. If you are the Son of God, then turn this rock into some bread. And I think it's less about actually turning the rock into the bread and more about that first bit. And he tries it again later. If you are the Son of God. Just moments before, the Father said, this is my Son, whom I love. And now Satan's saying, did God really say that? Are you really the Son of God? If you are, you could demonstrate it for me. If you are all that you are cracked up to be, then surely you could do this. And when Jesus is tired, when he's alone, when he's hungry, when he's in a valley, he's vulnerable. You know, if you're in that mountaintop experience, you just swat it away. Life is good. Everything's great. But you're having a bad day. You're having a Monday or a Tuesday or whatever day of the week. You know, and you're tired or you're hungry or you're grumpy. He says, did God really say? It's that if moment. And our life... Our life, who we are, flows out of our identity, doesn't it? It did for Jesus here, and it does for us. What you give yourself to, what you will spend your life doing, flows out of what you believe, who you are, your values, your culture almost. Yes, there's upbringing and there's all those kind of things, but it's about who you are. You know, if you think you're perfect, you become religious, basically, and everybody else is imperfect and you're amazing. But you become religious. You know, or if you, um, if you think you're hard done to, you become Jose Mourinho. Um, Jose Mourinho is the Chelsea manager and he is the biggest moaning, whining person I think I've ever seen on television. And it's because he's got this mentality that he's hard done to. That's his identity. He thinks the world is against him. And how does that manifest himself? Well, he's the biggest whining, moaning, person that you see on TV. And you're like, well, he wouldn't be very good company, would he? <laughs> you don't want an after, after a match drink with him after Chelsea lose again, which is fantastic, by the way. I would love for Chelsea to get relegated, just on a side point. But uh, if you're a Chelsea fan, sorry. Um, but who we are, the, our identity, you know, what we do then flows out of it. You know, if, if we believe the lie that we are damaged goods... We live like we're damaged goods, don't we? If we believe that nobody could possibly love us, we live in such a way that says nobody loves us. We wreck ourselves because we think nobody cares. You see, our life flows out of our identity. And actually, we begin to live out a lie. Because actually, none of us are beyond hope. The Father says to Jesus, this is my son whom I love. And Satan says, are you sure? You see, if you're a Christian here today, if you've put your faith in Jesus, this is why I said get baptized if you're a Christian. Because if you've put your faith in Jesus, um, you've been given another shot. You've been given a new life. You know, a lot of the time we think, oh, you know, we want to repair the brokenness. But that's not what Jesus does. He doesn't take my messed up, broken life and just do a little repair job that will break again. He gives me a new life. That's what he's in the business of doing, giving new life. Whatever we've done, whoever we are, however messed up, and if, if we believe the lie that we're damaged goods and we're beyond repair, no matter how damaged we are, Jesus says, you know what, I'll give you a new life if you trust in me. 
if you'd follow me instead of following yourself. And the Bible talks about um, this imagery of, as, as Christians, we become in Christ, which is actually a really powerful image. And it's all the way through the New Testament, you can have a look at it, and Paul particularly, says we are in Christ, we're new creations, we are in him. So in other words, that we are like Jesus. Jesus represents him, and we're almost, we become a part of who he is. Our identity then literally is him. So when the father says, this is my son whom I love, if you're a Christian, he says, this is my son who I love. Or if you're a lady, this is my daughter who I love. That's what the father says of you if you're in Christ. If you have a new life and you're a new creation. It's, it's when we close our eyes on this life, the words, well done, good and faithful servant are uttered. But it's not because I've been good or I've been faithful. It's because Jesus was for me and I'm in Christ. Because we chose well. If you are a Christian today, you are a son or daughter of God and he loves you enough to give his son for you. No matter what we've done, no matter what we will do. That's the good news of the gospel. That's why we hope even when the world is full of evil and it's dark. Because we have a new life and it will end well. But Satan will say to you, are you sure? Are you really? Did God really say? That's what he said in the garden, wasn't it? Did God really say to not do this? Did God really say that you're his precious son, your precious daughter? But in John 8, we're told that Satan is a liar and he's a deceiver and he seeks to destroy. And that's what he tries to do with temptation. You know, again, just reflecting on Friday and how that the events in Paris and the events in Beirut where, you know, over 200 people have just, lives, life has just gone. Life is so fragile, isn't it? And the events are terrible and it, it does kind of make you cry as you kind of watch the news when you see that level of evil. But it got me thinking, you know, that level of evil... Jesus dies upon a cross to save. You know, Jesus doesn't save me at my best. You know, life might be okay right now. Jesus died to save me at my worst. That when I was the worst I've ever been, that's when he took the cross. All my sin, all my shame, all of it gone. And so for those people that senselessly blew themselves up on Friday in Paris, Jesus went to the cross for them. Jesus died that if they would have put their faith in him, he would have saved them eternally. Just as the thief who hangs on the cross next to him says, Jesus, you shouldn't be here. <laughs> I, I'm here because I've, done, I've had a bad life, but you shouldn't be here. Jesus says, today I'll see you in paradise. I'll be with you. I save you. Jesus dies to save us <laughs> even when we're at our worst. And he steps in to save us. So I want to challenge you actually to pray for Islamic State. Yes, we pray for peace, but we pray that those people would meet Jesus. That's got to be our prayer. Every time they do something, every time it's on the news, pray for them. Pray that God would change their hearts. Pray that God would raise up another soul from within their own ranks. Because our, our task isn't vengeance, is it? But it's to love our enemies. 
is to show kindness, is to show love, is to show mercy. And so, you know, we have to know who we are, don't we? If we're going to deal with temptations, we have to know what our identity is. We have to know that we are the children of God. That God's with us, that God loves us, that he cares for us, no matter what the enemy will say. The second thing I love about this is this. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He's just been baptized. He's just there, and the Spirit goes with him. This is Jesus, again, the most godly man ever. And he still needs to be led by God the Holy Spirit. He still needs to be filled with God the Holy Spirit. Jesus, Son of God, the Spirit of God within him. And this is the great news. That same spirit that was within Jesus, we have access to today. The same spirit that raised Jesus from the grave is the one that lives within us. And uh, all because that we, we're new creations. And it's that, you know, that willingness, again, to be on our knees and say, God, I need your spirit. God, I need to, you to be with me. I need to know that you're with me in the hard times and in the good times. Because God doesn't empower us with himself. He doesn't give us the Holy Spirit that we can just run back again to the temptations that we've always been, you know, baited with. He doesn't give us his spirit so that we just fall time and again and again and again and again. That's not what the spirit of God is there for. The spirit of God is there to empower us that we would choose better. That we would choose God's way. You see, we have a choice all the time, don't we? Every day we choose either we're going to pursue God and his presence or we're going to pursue something else. We make that conscious decision. Don't we? Will I pursue your presence today? Will I spend time with you today? Will I pray today? Will I read your word today? Will I just wait on you today? Or will I do something else? Will it just be forgotten till I'm too tired and I put my head on my pillow? And I say I'm going to pray, but prayer becomes sleep. (laughs) Oh, it's okay because I pray in my sleep. That's what I used to say. It doesn't really work, I don't think. But Jesus here, the Son of God, needed the empowerment of God the Holy Spirit in the wilderness to defeat temptation. So if Jesus needs it, we need the power of the Spirit too, don't we? We've got to live in that way. We've got to pursue his presence. And uh, it's that beautiful picture, isn't it, that when we're new creations, the Spirit of God comes into our life and tells us that we're the children of God, reminds us that we're new creations, reminds us that we can live a different way. I mean, in Galatians, Paul says, look, if we live by the Spirit, let's keep in step with it. So if we are really the people of God, let's keep going. Let's, the, the metaphor is let's keep walking with it. Let's keep journeying with God every single day. And it's not a kind of willpower thing. I think it's more of a yielding thing. Often we just don't yield to God, do we? We don't say, you know what, God, I'm here. And I I need your help. Often we're like, I can conquer everything by myself. I can defeat temptation just by staring it out. No, you can't. (laughs) We need the spirit of God. We need God's help. And so Jesus knows who he is when he goes into battle, but he doesn't go alone. He has God, the Holy Spirit, with him, just as we don't go alone. And it's not all defense, if you like. There's the saying in sport, isn't it, that the greatest greatest defense, that's defense, I'm not American, the greatest defense is a good offense. That's what they always say, and that's the way that, you know, Liverpool, who nearly won the title, tried to play, except they didn't have any defense. 
which was just rubbish. And that's why we ended up throwing it all away. But it's almost that, okay, well, we don't just, you know, wait to be hit and wait to be hit and wait to be hit. There's got to be something we can do to fight back, to destroy it. And actually, Jesus uses the word of God. And that's what we've got to use too. To the three temptations um, that are opposed to Jesus, every time he quotes the Bible back, in, in the case of Jesus, is Deuteronomy. He quotes back that famous little book from the Old Testament to Satan and says, no, actually, Satan, it is written. It is written. It is written. And you'll, um, if you've read Deuteronomy, you'll be impressed that Jesus can quote it. Because it's not easy going. It's not like John 3.16. It's not the kind of stuff that you learn when you're a kid in Sunday school. He would have learned it. But for us today, it's not the kind of thing, you know, here's your memory verse, Deuteronomy 8. <laughs> not the kind of thing we tend to kind of spend too much time in. He probably, if he's just been baptized and he's straight into the wilderness, it's not like he's got a scroll where he's going, hold on, Satan, one second, it's written here somewhere. I'm just going through Deuteronomy. I'll be with you in a second. He knows it by heart. Now, if you're, here's a question for you. If today you're tempted by the enemy, and whether you defeat it or not rests on your ability to quote Deuteronomy, how are you going to get on? You're not going to get on very well, are we? Because we don't know God's word well enough. Because we don't spend enough time in God's word. I mean, if it was John 3.16, we'd be fine. <laughs> I've nailed that one. But if it rested on Deuteronomy, how are we going to get on? How are we going to get on if that was the case? And actually, our spiritual authority is the words of God that we find within Scripture. I mean, in Ephesians and in Hebrews, the word of God is described like this. For the word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. That's why I said at the start, sometimes you read it and you're like, oh, I didn't see that before. Like God shines a light on something that it's almost like all of a sudden it makes sense. But it never made sense before. It's living. It's powerful. It's there that we can defeat temptation. And it's the story of God and it tells us how we've been rescued from all evil. You know, it's a good book. Maybe you're kind of like, well, I've tried reading the Bible. You know, I started in Genesis and that was fine. And Exodus, that was pretty exciting too. But I got to Leviticus I didn't even get to Deuteronomy because Leviticus, I mean, Leviticus won, let alone the rest of it. You know, maybe if that's you, why don't you start in Matthew? You know, we're reading through Matthew. We're preaching through Matthew, however long that takes. Why don't you go to Matthew? Read about Jesus. Read about his story. Start there. It's better than starting nowhere. You know, and if you're not a massive reader, stick it on an audio book. You can do all sorts today through iTunes and the internet. You can listen to it on your commute to work. Be creative with your time. You know, I always say, you know, you pray going to work, but just don't close your eyes. But you could listen to the words of God as you go to work if you've got an hour commute every day. Can't you? Because if you just sat on the train, it's just wasting time, really, until you get to your destination. So use it wisely. The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, if we want to be ready for battle, if we actually want to see change, if we want to defeat darkness and evil in our own life and see change in the world, we've got to know the word of God better. Because it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what my opinion is on culture or the world or whether something is right or wrong. What matters is what God says. And I've got to know what God says. 
So I've got to know when God says to me, or when Satan comes and the enemy comes and says, are you really a son of God? I've got to know that Romans 8 says, yes, I am. I've got to know that Jesus says, yes, you are. That I love you. That I care for you. That I died for you. I've got to know the word of God. I've got to know that God loved me enough that he'd send his son for me. I've got to tell myself back that story. Because otherwise I'll just forget. Otherwise I'll believe the lie. I'll believe I'm worthless. I'll believe I'm hopeless. I'll believe I've got nothing to live for. Because it's just a lie. None of those things are true. But we've got to know what God says. We've got to know his word. Because it's not good deeds that's going to you know, win this fight. You know, I've seen on social media, there's been all sorts of things, but one of them has been a really nice quote by Martin Luther King, which says, you know, we won't defeat darkness with darkness, but with light. But actually, Martin Luther King needs to go a bit further. You know, it's not our light that's going to defeat darkness. Is it? It's not our good deeds that's going to defeat darkness. It's going to be Jesus that has already defeated darkness, but will ultimately do it when he returns. What's going to change people's lives and hearts and attitudes and cultures? The gospel What's going to change the hearts of the people of Islamic State? Not whether we're nice to them or not. Whether we give them Jesus or not. That's what's going to transform lives. What's going to transform the town of Chesterfield? The gospel. What's going to transform the places that you work? The gospel. And it's when people meet Jesus, it's then that lives change. We can't expect people to change in, in the way that we want them to, in the world to change, and the morality of the world to change, if people aren't meeting Jesus? Why are people going to think euthanasia is wrong if they haven't met Jesus, if they don't know his word, if they don't know the value that God places upon life? They're not getting it, are they? But if they meet Jesus, then they will. How are people going to know doing so-and-so is wrong and we should be honoring God and living in such a way unless they're captivated by something greater, unless their hearts are caught by something, unless they hear his word? That's our response to the enemy. That's our response to evil is, well, this is what God says. This is God's heart for our planet, that everyone will come to know him that everyone would experience true peace. One of the other things, we're not very good at this because we're British, but ways of defeating temptation is we've got to be honest, haven't we? We've got to front out our weaknesses, you know. We've got to be honest with one another. Look, I'm really struggling with this. I'm really not very good at dealing with this. You know, for me, I think I've said this before, alcohol isn't a problem. It's not a vice on me, but for some of you it might be. And we've got to be honest about that. Or ego, or pride, or anger, or jealousy, or lust, or gluttony. Because if we recognize what our weakness is, we start to recognize bait for what it is. You know, if we don't recognize our own weaknesses and where we're tempted to fall short, we're not going to recognize that that's just bait on a hook. That that's just something there designed to trip us up, that we'd fall. You know, Satan tries with Jesus three things. He tries pleasure, he tries power, he tries fame. And Jesus each time recognizes that. You know, if I turn this rock to bread, it's going to give me immediate pleasure, but I'm not going to be following after my Father in heaven. I'm not going to be doing what I'm called to do.
The bait will always target us when we're hurting and when we're low and when we're tired or when we feel alone. So that's why we've got to remember who we are all the time. You've got to remember you're a child of God if you know him, that we're filled with the spirit and we have the word of God. And there's these amazing words of comfort from 1 Corinthians 10 that God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. You know, temptation is something that all of us will face in our lifetime. We can't escape it. It's part and parcel of humanity that we will face these things. That we're going to face a battle, but we can do something about that, can't we? We can prepare ourselves. This is what Matthew's trying to get across here. This is what Matthew's saying to Jesus. Jesus knew who he was. (laughs) He could defeat Satan because he knew who he was. He had the word of God with him. He was empowered by God the Holy Spirit to do that. Because Satan will try again and again in Luke's kind of rendition of this passage. He says, Satan left Jesus until an opportune time. That's what it says in Luke's gospel. In Matthew's it says, Jesus said, get away from me, and Satan did. (laughs) But in Luke's it said, he left until an opportune time, which means he came back to try again. He had another go. And that's what he will try and do. He will try and trip us up. And we will fall. We will make mistakes. We might have done this week. We might have given into temptation. We might have done something that we know breaks God's heart, that hurts God, that we know is not right before him. But we're not beyond hope. Satan will tell you that you're beyond hope now. That, oh, you've given into temptation. Oh, you really are a scumbag. Nobody loves you. God doesn't care for you because you did this. And you'll believe it. But it's not true. And no matter how many times we fall, Jesus died for it. That we might have a new life. That we might be made whole. And we have to hold on to the finish line. You know, in these dark days when we see Beirut, we see Paris, we see terrorism, we have to hold on to the hope. We have to remember it ends well. We have to remember Jesus has the final say. That Jesus is victorious, that sin, death, hell, terrorism are done away with forever. We have to remember that. We have to be people of hope compared to the rest of the world, not people of despair. Why do we hope? Because Jesus has defeated it all. No matter how low, no matter how afflicted we may feel, no matter how dark the world is, there is still hope. There is still victory. And it's all in Jesus' name. Because on the final day, because Jesus is going to return and he's going to come back because the Bible tells, you know, there's lots of prophecies and a lot of them have been fulfilled, but there's still a lot of prophecies about Jesus and the fact he's going to come back, which means he's going to. On that final day, all weapons are going to be laid down and there will be peace. And what I want for you more than anything is that God would say to you, well done, good and faithful servant that God would look upon you and say, well done. You were in Christ. You remembered who you were. You were full of the spirit. You took ground from the enemy. It wouldn't be great to take back Chesterfield from the realms of darkness, to see light shining, to see lives transformed as they meet Jesus. But we've got to be the people that take that ground. And we only take that ground if we're prepared for battle. Because if we're unprepared for battle, we will fall. But if we go in the strength of Christ, we go together, we front out our weaknesses, because we all have them. 
and we rely upon God's spirit on that final day, we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, you trusted in Jesus. You were in Christ. And you held on to hope even in the darkest of days.